Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, we're, gonna, we're still in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through... 34 this morning. Uh, I was reminded before I came up here that just before you get into Halifax, there is a house that apparently had caught on fire last night um, on 501. So if you if you feel inclined to to pray for, we saw the family. It looked like sitting outside the house. It was completely burned. Uh, it, it looked pretty bad. So. Uh, just keep that family in your prayers. Maybe, be, maybe you'll hear something about it, and, and maybe there's something that, um, as a church body, uh, maybe there's an opportunity to minister in a way. I just wanted to put that on your radar this morning before we get started. Uh, by the way, some of the books back there, too, uh, they're duplicates, uh, but sometimes I forget when I have duplicates, you know, uh, which book I'm in, so I take the same book and I write in it. So if you see any of my dialogue in any of those books, um, just you can ignore it. It's not that substantial at all. I just you know sometimes uh, do that, but I, I look through most of them. Most of them don't have my commentary in it, but I think one of them does. So uh, just a, as a heads up, let's go ahead and look at John one nineteen through thirty four together this morning. If you would read along with me in your Bibles, hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. And the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, in the next few moments, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word? Uh, your word says that when the worries of our heart are many, your consolations cheer our soul. So may worried hearts, fearful hearts, and doubting hearts, uh, and maybe even stagnant hearts, uh, may 
May your consolations, may your words, may your instruction, may your beauty and magnificence revealed here in this passage, may it cheer our hearts and quicken them and, and cause them to be like a stream of water in your hand, able to be turned wherever you will. Father, I pray that you would give me words. Um, we pray for the family uh, that my wife and I passed here on the way uh, who lost their home this morning. Uh, Father, we pray for your provision and your protection. And if they do not know you, I pray that uh, they would come to know you uh, through this trial. We love you and we ask that you would be with us here in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, it was a beautiful morning, and on arriving, all were in high spirits. Uh, pipes and cigars alit, and looking forward to a day of unrestrained enjoyment. Charles Spurgeon, who was ready waiting at the gate, jumped up to the box seat reserved for him, and looking around with astonishment, exclaimed, What, gentlemen? Are you not ashamed to be smoking so early? Here was a damper. Dismay on every face. Pipes and cigars, one by one, failed and dropped out of sight. When all had disappeared, out came his cigar case. He lit up and smoked away serenely. Astonishment was now on every face. One of the party nearest to him said, I, I, Sir, I thought you had said you objected to smoking, Mr. Spurgeon. Oh, no, he replied. I did not say I objected. I asked if they were not ashamed, and it appears they were, for they have put them all out. And he puffed away quietly and serenely. Well, as a pastor in Victorian England, it was not uncommon for Spurgeon to receive flack uh, about this particular hobby that he so enjoyed. Uh, you know, while Spurgeon is known for his preaching and his writing, he's also known for his enjoyment of cigars. Uh, in fact, when a guest preacher came to speak for Mr. Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, they decided to tag-team the pulpit. And so this preacher would preach the doctrine, and Spurgeon would preach the application section. And so this particular minister got up and started preaching about giving up uh, little sins like smoking uh, tobacco, specifically in the form of cigars, to which Mr. Spurgeon gets up after and gives the application, and he writes, Friends, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> I share these Spurgeon stories and remarks, uh, not in order to highlight that Spurgeon was being the cool uh, or edgy pastor, of his day as though he was trying to make a statement. I share these stories um, and remarks because Charles Spurgeon knew what it meant to live freely for the glory of God. The reason why he was able to say he was going to partake in that enjoyment for the glory of God is because Spurgeon knew his freedom in Christ. He knew that he could live freely for the glory of God, and that's why he could be so humorous and cheerful uh, and open with it. Uh, now, the point of our text this morning is not for all of us to light up cigars and start puffing away and turning this place into a cigar lounge, although I'm sure that would be, uh, make for an interesting worship service. Um, but the point I want to make from our text this morning, and the reason why I share that, uh, is because John the Baptist also demonstrates to us this morning what it means to live freely for the glory of God. John the Baptist was a man who had one aim in life, and that was to make Jesus increase. And if your aim is to make Jesus increase, well, friends, you are going to live freely for the glory of God. And in particular, we see two uh, ways that John the Baptist demonstrates how you live freely for the glory of God uh, for us this morning. And the first way that John demonstrates this for us um, is, is John rejected religiosity. John rejects 
religiosity. The scene begins with a bit of a Q&A session between a group of priests, uh, Levites, and John the Baptist. If you look at verse 19, the scene opens up, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? In other words, uh, they sent the big guns out to John. These were the religious elites. Uh, Levites, of course, if you know your Old Testament, were the only tribe of Israel who could become priests in the lineage of Aaron. These were the group of people that were given the special privilege of representing the people to God. They had divine pedigree. They had a family lineage that goes back to the first priest. And we later find out in our passage that the Jews who had sent the priests and Levites were not just random common folk. These were not the nobodies, but they were the religious somebodies. We find out later that it was the Pharisees who sent this particular group of Levites and priests. Right, friends, these were the PhDs of the day. These were your experts. If you wanted to be an influencer back in Jesus' day, uh, then there were, these were the guys you wanted to break in with. These were the guys who were publishing the books, who, who were writing the articles, who, who knew what it, what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh. If you wanted to know anything about theology, or if your theology didn't line up with the Pharisees and the Levites and priests, well, well you just weren't in the crowd. Uh, and you might not even be that good with God. So when the guys asked John, who are you? We know that these are, these are the big guns from Jerusalem. He's not talking to nobodies, but he's talking to the somebodies. And his response in verse 20 through 23 is telling. He, write, he, he says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You know, John's response was not very impressive. Uh, It wasn't earning any popularity points uh, with these guys. Notice the first question they ask, and and we have to kind of break down each question they give because it's important for us to understand uh, why they ask these questions. Notice they first ask, are you Elijah? One of the questions we have to ask to that question is, why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Right? Elijah's been long gone uh, since the time that John the Baptist has stepped onto the scene. The great Old Testament prophet who was swept off in a chariot of fire as he was on a walk with his mentee, Elijah. Well, one of the reasons why they would have asked this question here particularly is because of Malachi 4, uh, verses 5 through 6. One of the last set of verses in all of the Old Testament. And Malachi prophesies in those verses, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's a prophecy at the end of Malachi that seems to be fulfilled in John the Baptist's ministry. He's doing things strikingly similar to that prophecy. Right? He's turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He's calling for repentance among the people of Israel. So there's one reason why they might think that maybe this is the Elijah to come. It could also be the fact that he looked a lot like Elijah. Uh, Matthew's gospel describes John in, in, as this way in chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is almost identical to how the prophet Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8. 
Uh, I'll let you read that on your own time. Uh, uh, but maybe John the Baptist was reading 2 Kings one day and came across 1.8 and thought, yeah, I think that's how I'll dress from now on. Uh, we've all had models that we look up to. I mean, some of them are a little bit uh, unattainable for us, uh, like mine and uh, with, with John Wayne and Charles Spurgeon. Uh, you know, I probably will never look like those two men, but we all have these models. So I don't know, maybe, maybe he was reading that and thought, it would, you know, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll dress like that. Um, I'll preach like that or eat like that. Either way, John the Baptist looked eerily like the prophet Elijah. And he was doing things that fit the bill of Malachi 4, 5 through 6. So this group of scholars, and that, it's not a weird question as, as we might think, right from the beginning at least, for them to ask him, are you Elijah? But John says, I'm not Elijah. Uh, although in Matthew eleven thirteen through 15, Jesus does refer to John the Baptist as the Elijah-like figure who was to come. Jesus says of John the Baptist, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until now until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It might be a little confusing because John the Baptist is saying he's not the Elijah to come, and Jesus is saying he is the Elijah to come. And so we're like, what are we to make of this here? Well, friends, it's one thing for Jesus to bestow such an honorable and highly esteemed title on someone, and another thing entirely for that person to take it upon themselves to make much of themselves. It's one thing for Jesus to say, yeah, that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. And another for John to claim it as his own, especially in front of people of high standing. We all know what it's like to be in front of so-called influential people and want to make much of ourselves by fabricating something to make us ourselves look better in front of these people. But John wasn't about that. John was never about making much of himself. And so his response is fitting to who he is. I am not Elijah. The second question also has roots in the Old Testament when they ask him, are you the prophet? Well, what prophet are they referring to? Because there were many prophets. Well, the question that these individuals are thinking of actually comes from Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses tells his people, uh, of, uh, people of Israel that God will one day raise up a prophet like himself, and, and it is to that prophet that you shall listen to. So the people of Israel were still anticipating not just a prophet, but the prophet, which is why they ask him, are you that prophet? Are you the Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15 prophet that we should be uh, looking to and listening to, the prophet like Moses? And again, John could have easily taken, again, they are throwing at John the Baptist opportunity after opportunity to, to almost make him uh, to be a, a little god, so to speak. Right? If John wanted in with the in crowd, with the ones who were supposedly had it, had it all together, had it all right, had it all figured out, this was the opportunity for him to take it. And he doesn't. He doesn't capitalize on the fact that he clearly had a unique ministry and a, a magnetism and a, and a charisma to him uh, where people would follow his lead in going to him on the other side of the Jordan to be baptized. It's, 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 it's pretty uh, challenging for us to read this about this individual here because uh, how many of us spend our time using our influence, our charisma, our personality, our unique gifts to draw people to Jesus rather than drawing them to ourselves? So John the Baptist simply responds, No, I am not the prophet. And, and clearly, these guys are not getting anywhere with John, so they finally ask him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. 
What do you say about yourself? But here's the thing. John, is, John the Baptist is dealing with, uh, again, religious, rigid, religious, um, highfalutin uh, people of his day. And is it not like religious people to care more about giving good answers to the right people rather than seeking to understand and to perceive uh, and to embrace what God is doing and providing right in front of them? Notice, uh, they, they, they don't press any further than that. They don't ask any follow-up questions. They simply say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Friends, these uh, people uh, were not interested in what God was doing and what God was, uh, how he was fulfilling his purposes through his servant. Uh, what they were all about, where they were about uh, people-pleasing. These were people-pleasers and self-exalters. Uh, and so they weren't really trying to figure out anything here. They weren't really interested in Isaiah's prophecy, clearly, because they don't really do anything with it when John responds with it. They were selective with their questions, and they were selective with the text they chose. Again, religious people love to select different texts, only the text they want to select and, and bring them uh, at you when you are doing the things that uh, God has clearly given you the freedom and called you to do. If John the Baptist did not fit their pre-qualifications, they didn't really care. That's what we're seeing here. They were looking for the answers they were looking for, and they wanted to please the Pharisees who sent them. Uh, so they say, we need an give us any answer here. You haven't given us the answer that we wanted. Give us an answer. So we can go back and, 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 and let them know what you're saying and what you're doing. They wanted to please the Pharisees and uh, they weren't getting anything out of John the Baptist. And how easy it would have been for John to fall prey to people-pleasing here. Right? To, to fall prey to their religiosity and their self-exaltation and to be a part of the in-crowd. And not only to be a part of the in-crowd, it would have made his ministry easier, right? Because then they wouldn't have had to report back to, well, John is none of these things. And I, we only asked the questions that we wanted to ask. And, and so clearly he shouldn't be doing what he's doing out there. Uh, clearly too many people are being influenced by his ministry. And, and so it would have been more convenient for John to minister had he just given them the answers that they wanted to hear. To give these guys an answer that would ultimately work in his favor. To capitalize on his spiritual position in ministry for gain. Friends, that is the stuff of cheap, worthless, empty religion. That is religiosity at its finest. It's the stuff that cultural Christianity is made of. To, to appease and to give in and to make things work in our favor and to only be Christians when it's convenient, to only follow Jesus to a T when it's convenient for us. Not when it makes us look bad, or not when it makes us, or not when it causes tension or confusion or maybe some disruption here in the status quo. Right? It's the stuff that the world is made of, ultimately, and it's constantly shifting values and ideas based on popular opinion. Uh, it's religiosity, friends, that says, give us the answers we want, please the people we need, look good, feel good, do good, and don't get too radical or fanatical or too out of step with the norm uh, or our own theological ideas because the experts know and we should just follow suit with the experts. John's response to them was, was humble yet scriptural. Now we can really take our cues here from John the Baptist. If you want to respond to religiosity, use the scriptures even when religious people use the scriptures against you. He responds, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, John was content to respond with who he was, with who God said he was. John's response was rooted in what God had said and what God was doing. He didn't need to claim the title of Elijah of the last days or the prophet or the Christ. John's, friends, delight and freedom was in who God said he was, and that is, that's the identity that John took. That's the identity that John internalized and lived out no matter who was around. In other words, John said, I, I, I am the one I am the voice. He delighted in the fact that he was just that he had that really subtle title. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I'm just a, 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 a billboard to the one who's to come. I'm just a sounding board for the one uh, who is the one you should be listening to. The prophet who is like Moses, only better than Moses. John not only could have embraced these highly esteemed titles, by the way, but he could have capitalized on his own pedigree. Uh, as we know from the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah, who is a Levitical priest. Right? Uh, now, so, so John the Baptist himself is a Levite. Not only that, but he's, uh, he's the Messiah's cousin. Right? So if anybody had pedigree to capitalize on and to prop up and say, well, hey, like, hey, guys, it's all good. I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I have this. It would have been John the Baptist. But he doesn't use any of that. John had a host of identities he could have used to benefit himself or increase his image in the eyes of the religious elite. But John's identity, again, was who God had called him to be, who he was according to the Scriptures. He appealed to the Word of God. He didn't need to take away from it or to add to it or redefine. Uh, He didn't need or desire to bolster his image. He embraced his place as someone who was going to decrease and watch Jesus increase in his life, in the life of others. He didn't need to be anything more or anything less. He delighted, and he rejoiced, and he embraced. He didn't care uh, about what uh, the religious elite thought or saw in him. John rejected religiosity for uh, what the Bible calls true godliness, uh, which does not need to bolster image. Right? Uh, 1 Timothy 3.5, Paul writes to young Timothy and, and says that uh, there is a godliness that has a, fo- there's a form of godliness, there's, there's an image of godliness, and then there's the substance and the power of godliness. Right? The priests and the Levites and the Pharisees, as we're going to see all throughout the Gospel of John, they had the form of godliness down. They played the part well. They went to the synagogue. They knew the Torah. Uh, they, they, they tied the amount that they were supposed to tithe. They did everything they were supposed to do. And in the eyes of the common people of Israel, they looked like they were the ones who were going to be having the front row seats in the kingdom of God in the age to come. And yet... Jesus said these people were whitewashed tombs. Inside they were dead. They didn't have the power of godliness. Again, John the Baptist, John the Baptist looks like, I mean, if, if, if he were here today, I mean, he would, I mean, he would look like a, a, your, your, your average blue-collar work, blue worker. 
Right? This wasn't, he did not look like somebody. He was not suited and booted. This was not a man who, who, who looked like he was a scholar. And yet, the godliness that radiated off of John the Baptist because he simply uh, was content and obedient in who the Scriptures said that he was and who belonged to and who he was supposed to point to. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 1, 6-10 with such a condemning tone regarding any other gospel or good news message other than what's been preached by Christ and the apostles. Because it's a result of wanting to please people. If you go back and read Galatians 1, whether uh, if you read Galatians 1 and you're looking at these, these cats that are asking the questions to John the Baptist and as we're going to see them more often in our gospel, um, it's a result of wanting people uh, to receive glory from people and to be made much of. Right? Whether, whether a, any message or idea or philosophy or worldview, um, any, because the gospel just means good news. Right? It's, it's, it's a message of good news. And so there's a host of messages that have good news tacked to it that say, if you want to be somebody, here's some good news. Do this, do that, whatever. All dead religion has, finds its source in needing or wanting to please man and in seeking self-gain the, uh, and applause and the approval of man. You contradict the call to follow Christ. That's why Paul was so devastated uh, when the church in Galatia was uh, abandoning the grace of God uh, for religiosity and ways of man. John did not need the appearance or titles to prove anything to anyone or himself. He knew he was God's. He had been sent by God and that his job was simply to point people to the coming Messiah. And in simply doing that, John rejected the religiosity of his day. John wasn't falling prey to their expectations or their academic credentials or or people-pleasing. So they ask him another set of questions. This is John the Baptist here. Sold out for God. Sold out for the Scriptures. Sold out for his task. And he, um, they ask him in verse 24 through 25, John writes, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So now we, we're kind of getting some background here. They asked him, then, then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Implied in this question is, you should not be doing the things you are doing because you do not fit. You are not fit to do these things. You are not fit to point people to who God is. Who are you to tell the people of Israel the character of God or how they should live in light of who God is? You are not a somebody, so you should not be doing the things that somebodies do. You can't do that. They're getting riled up here. Their rigidness turns into, they're frantic now. If you're neither of these, why are you doing this? Uh, Friends, you want to find out how religious someone is um, and that they have the form of godliness and deny its power? Just uh, Just follow the call of Christ and point to Christ in all you're doing. You're going to make religious people really mad. You start doing the business of Jesus. You start talking about Jesus. You start pointing to Jesus. You start asking other people to come to Jesus. And you take away the influence of the influencers to point to the one who has the control over everything. You start living a life that's sold out and doesn't really care what other people think. It doesn't matter how weird you look. It doesn't matter uh, how strange you're acting or if you're being holier than thou. Right? You want to make religious people mad or you want to drive religiosity out of uh, your um, kind of... You want to drive religiosity out of the church. 
just elevate and exalt in Jesus. Better yet, you want to disgruntle religious people, call them to repentance. Call religious people to repentance and watch what happens. Call them to repentance. Watch how someone who is steeped in religion, yet also steeped in sin, respond to someone in Christ, call them to repent. That's what John's baptism was all about. Of course they're going to be indignant if he appears to be of no significance, right? What gives John the Baptist the right? Matthew recounts in his, in, in in his gospel, in Matthew 3, 7 through 11, uh, John doesn't recount this uh, portion here, but uh, Matthew writes, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, talking about John the Baptist, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, so every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he ends with, I baptize with water for repentance. John the Baptist was free to do the things God had called him to do because he knew who he was, who he belonged to, and who had sent him. He could live freely for the glory of God because he rejected religiosity. He wasn't about the form of godliness. He was about the power of godliness. And so the question for us is, will we reject religiosity for the glory of God as John the Baptist did? Will we continue on in religiosity with with the self-gain and pride and indignation, all the while missing God in the midst of it? Notice in verse 26, they miss God because of their religion. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the saddest part of it all. Apparently at the time of this dialogue, Jesus was standing in the crowd, and they missed it. You know, friends, it's entirely possible to be religious and to completely miss Jesus. It is entirely possible to be the most religious person, the more, most uh, have it all together, the most uh, faithful tither, the most, most faithful church member, uh, the most faithful uh, co-worker, uh, whatever you want to put it. You, you could have a tr- spotless track record. You could have uh, no past right, that you are uh, essentially ashamed of. You could, have, you could have done all the right things growing up. You could have had all the answers in Sunday school class, and you can miss Jesus in all of it. to miss true godliness, to miss the one that John is about to introduce as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To live freely for the glory of God is to reject religiosity. The second way that John the Baptist lived freely for the glory of God here in our passages is that he rejoiced in redemption. So not only did he reject religiosity, he rejected to stoop low to a bunch of people who seemed to be high. He rejected that and he rejoiced in redemption here. The second scene begins uh, on the next day. So here's day two. uh, And it's probably one of the gospel, greatest 
gospel proclamations in preaching history. I could never write a sermon better than this proclamation that John gave us here in John 1.29 where he says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who knew a Baptist could rejoice at this level and get so emotional in a crowd? Charles Spurgeon once said, My entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. Religion comes with a list of rules and regulations, but Jesus comes with redemption. It comes from God. The gospel of grace doesn't give us a bunch of stuff to do, but a person to behold. Did you see that there? John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and his proclamation was not be this, or be that, or be better, or belong to this sect, pointing to the Pharisees, or bend over backward trying to be good enough. He just looks at a person and says, Behold. Behold the Lamb of God. Or it's just a strong way of saying look. Look deeply. Don't just glance. Don't just take a look at Jesus and then uh, kind of nod towards Jesus' work and then spend the rest of your life adding to the work that is completely finished by the Lamb of God uh, or just living how you want to live and, and, and just kind of you know, letting people, the people of God have no business in your business. Right? That's the stuff of religiosity here. But John the Baptist says, Behold, Right, that's the best, model, the best model of preaching that I have is John the Baptist because he's not giving people seven ways to be more efficient right, or to live your best life or giving doctrinal lectures. Right? He's, not, he's not trying to break down here um, everything that people should know. He is pointing to the person that the people should behold, to look deeply at to take in, in all of his magnificence, in all of his worthiness, in all of his spotlessness, in all of the redemption and the forgiveness and the grace that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's not giving them a, a, a kind of bullet list here. He's calling them to behold a person. Notice John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We ask, why is that significant that Jesus is called the Lamb of God here? Well, for starters, about this time in the narrative, commentators point out that it's Passover week. And again, if we're students of our Old Testaments, we know that celebrating a redemption, what is, which was, that's what all the Passover was about. The way they celebrated the Passover, the way God had delivered them out of slavery from Egypt in the Exodus, uh, was by uh, slaying or sacrificing a spotless lamb and then putting the blood of that lamb on their doorpost to signify God's passing over his wrath and judgment over his people because he saw the blood on the doorpost. That's what was happening here. This week as Jesus is walking through the crowd and John looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Passover was happening. So people and and their households were already preparing their lamb for the sacrifice. And John looks at Jesus and says, That's the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God. You know, the Pharisees would have had their lambs prepared and people would have had their lambs prepared and and John is getting people to look deeply at this lamb. Exodus 12, 1-13 reminds us of this grand act, right? And I want to read it here just so we can take it all in. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 12, 1-13, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. That's a lot of lambs. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep of the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its heads with its legs and its inner parts, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, and I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." Or how about uh, even earlier than the Exodus with Abraham and his son in Genesis 22, 1-8? We all remember that kind of weird story. Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Genesis 22, 1-8, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of the mountains, on one of the mountains which I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose and went to the place to which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So They went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? It's a good question. I'd be asking the same question if I was walking up to my father and we're offering something. And Abraham's response is, is filled He's filled with the gospel. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb of a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. If you remember at that moment, they, they didn't find a lamb. We all know how the story ends. Isaac survives uh, that you know, trauma, traumatic uh, experience with his dad. And, and, and God does provide a sacrifice. But if you remember, uh, God does not uh, provide the lamb. There's no lamb. There's no spotless lamb. But instead, they find a ram stuck in the thicket. Of, uh, of, of debris. And, and so there, we were left with, without an answer in Genesis, we're left without the Lamb of God that was supposed to be provided by God. This Isaac says, or Abraham says, God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering. Or how about Isaiah 53 7, where Isaiah prophesies, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
And later in verse 10 of that same prophecy, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is what Jesus meant, or John meant, or Jesus meant when he said in John 19.30 with his final breath, when he says, it is finished. What was finished was the removal of the sin of the world for all those who will put faith in Jesus. It was the final, spotless, perfect Lamb of God that God Himself provided for us to take in. John did not say, labor on, but look on. He didn't say, work yourself to death. He says, see Christ crucified for sins. See the Lamb of God. See the Lamb of God that no longer requires each and every family to have their own separate lamb for a sacrifice every single year, but see the one that is going to be for all those who come to Him in faith. See the Lamb of God that no longer, uh, that, that covers all your sin. And it doesn't just cover the doorposts on your door, friends. It covers every single sin, every single moment of your life that you have or are or will falling short of the glory of God and failing to meet His perfect holiness. It doesn't just cover a part of your house. It covers all of God's house, all of God's people, in all times, in all places, no matter what you find yourself in, the blood of the Lamb of God is completely sufficient to cover it all. This isn't religion. This is redemption. This isn't religion. This is reconciliation. This isn't religion, but it's rejoicing. This is the stuff that makes dead people come to life. This is, this is life-giving and conscience-cleansing and soul-satisfying and, and eternally fixed for the one who comes to Christ in faith. This, is, this will make your soul sing. You want, to, you want to see the most miserable people in the world? You want to see the most tired and the most drained and the more, most uh, uh, just difficult? Uh, you want to see that person? See that person who's operating within rigid religiosity. See the person who, who fails to see the gift of God in Christ and the freedom that they have in Christ. Hebrews 9, 11-14, the author writes, He, meaning Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, there's security in this. If you ever think to yourself or lay your head down at night and think about your track record, even as a Christian, you might be tempted to think, I don't know if this redemption is secure. I don't know if I, 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 don't know if I can have real lasting joy because man, I don't know if I uh, am still you know, in good standing with God. And yet the author of Hebrews says, look, the blood that was poured out for us, secured an eternal redemption. And he goes on and he says, uh, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God. 
Some of us are still in the old religious system, daily sacrificing lambs and lambs and lambs and lambs and trying to, trying to get our conscience to be in good standing with God. And we're trying and we're trying and we're trying and we're trying and we're doing and doing and we just, we just don't stop and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who eternally secured our redemption in Jesus. Friends, you don't have to stay in the old system where it requires of you to do certain things multiple times, uh, to commit acts. Of, you know, this, that, is, that is the stuff that robs the joy and the freedom that is provided for us in Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away my sin, who takes away your sin, sin by faith in his name. John bore witness, verses 32 through 34. Not only does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world, but he actually gives out the Spirit of God to us, by the way, to apply the, the work of God in our lives. It's meant to be lived. It's meant to be rejoiced in. We know that because in verses 32 through 34, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So now we're getting introduced to the third person uh, of the triune God that we've been introduced to in John's prologue. And, uh, you know, this is cause to rejoice. John is looking at the one whom the Spirit doesn't just come and go on, but remains on. And then when we're in Christ, that logically follows that the Spirit stays and remains with us to keep us and to and to keep us sensitive to the work of God in Christ, um, and if we and if we remember Ephesians, right, the work of the Spirit of God uh, is to secure us for eternity, to keep us, and we and if we know Romans five five, uh, God's love, Paul writes, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the giving of the Holy Spirit is a confirmation of, with our spirit that yes, you're mine, you're kept, you're loved, you're cared for, and you are redeemed. And so you can rejoice. That's what Paul, God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the vessel by which God's love is manifested in our hearts by which God's love uh, defines us and dictates our every uh, movement and all of our thinking and all of our doing and all of our failings and all of our uh, mess-ups. We have a keeper. We have a companion. We have, a, we have the application of God's work in Christ remaining and dwelling in us. And so when, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's the meat of the gospel there. But then he continues and says, And he's also given you his spirit. Through Jesus, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. This is good news. This is worth celebrating. This is not... Why would we want rigid and cold and calculated religion when we have warm, life-giving redemption in a living person whose pulse still beats now, even now? Choose Jesus today. Choose a person. Choose a person who breathes, who breathes, and live freely for the glory of God. Live freely for the glory of God because in Jesus we are free indeed. 
we have nothing that religiousness, religiosity uh, could ever give us. So reject religiosity and rejoice in redemption through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, cure our hearts of of yoking ourselves with the law. Yes, we uphold the law and we agree with the law. But we are not yoked to it. We are yoked to the one who fulfilled the law in our stead. Would we all have a tendency to operate out of self-righteous religion or a free-for-all religion which says, I can do how I please. Both are bondage. Both is of the spirit of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the ones who cared nothing for what you were doing in their midst. May we, Lord, see clearly the places in our lives where religiosity has taken us captive and stolen the joy of redemption that comes through Jesus. May we be a church that is filled with joy in the gospel. May the gospel shape and, and, uh, and, and mold us. May we be a joyful people because of the redemption we have in the Lamb of God. May we be a grace-filled people, not only ready to receive this grace, but to give this grace because we have the Spirit of God and with the Spirit of God, we will not run on empty with the grace overflowing. We love you and we thank you for the Lamb of God. May we spend our week beholding, rejoicing, uh, and celebrating. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.